about five years ago, God increasingly made it clear that a time of shaking was coming. He was going to shake the church to purify it, and he was going to shake the nations so that they might return to him. In this country, with both Brexit and then COVID, we have seen some of that shaking. What I believe God is now saying to the church in this country, and to us at BNA in particular, that we must get ready. As the Spirit of God moves powerfully across Bristol, we are going to have many people seeking him. And we in the church need to be ready to point people to salvation in Jesus and to teach those who have come to Jesus about faith in him. As part of this, we've been looking at some of the more challenging parts of the Bible. Last year, we studied the book of Genesis, and this year we are looking at Matthew's Gospel, and in particular, at Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. You will recall that Jesus started this sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, such as, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. Then he went on to remind us that Christians are meant to be the salt of the earth and a light to the world. Then, as Wayne explained last week, Jesus made it clear that he was not teaching new things. Rather, he himself fulfills what had been set out in the Old Testament. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus takes one of the Ten Commandments, but he then challenges us on our understanding of it. So today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, and I shall ask my wife Jane to read this passage for us. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. About 1,500 years before Jesus was born on earth, God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the desert where he started to weld them into a nation. Now, to avoid anarchy, a nation needs a set of rules, and therefore God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. These included, you shall not murder, which we're looking at today, and you shall not commit adultery, which we shall look at next time. Of course, rules of this sort almost always have to be in negative form. You shall not do something. So you have a rule that says, you shall not murder, because it's usually pretty clear if a person has been murdered or not. It would be great if we could have positive laws. You shall be kind to your neighbour. But how would they ever be enforced? Charles, you are charged with not being kind enough to your neighbour. How do you plead? And I suppose I would answer, Well, I think I was fairly kind, at least some of the time. Surely that's good enough, isn't it? 
But if you're like me, you possibly find there's something rather comforting about having a list of negative rules. Rules which say you must not do this or you must not do that. Firstly, with such a list of rules, we can go through them from time to time and tick off the ones we consider we have kept. Don't murder. Tick. Don't steal. Tick. And thereby we can play down the ones which we have broken. Well, I got seven out of ten this week. That's not too bad. And it's certainly better than last week where I got five out of ten. Hilaire Belloc once preached at a church that had the Ten Commandments written out on two boards on either side of the altar, five on one side and five on the other. Later that day, he bumped into the philosopher Bertrand Russell and mentioned the Ten Commandments on the two boards. And Bertrand Russell is said to have replied, I always think there should be some rubric at the bottom saying, Candidates should not attempt more than two from any one section. What is even more satisfying is that while we're ticking off the rules we have kept, we can think of those we know who've broken that particular rule, and we can congratulate ourselves on how we are so much better than them. This is, of course, not a new phenomenon. Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As many of you know, both Jane and I are lawyers, and in the 1980s we both used to do criminal work. Now, I don't know if things have changed these days, but both Jane and I used to be amused at the hierarchy we encountered in prisons. The person serving a prison sentence for theft would say, I might be dishonest, but I have never been a violent offender. Those in prison for robbery, which is really theft with violence, would say, Well, I might do a bit of violence, but I'm not a sex offender. Inside all of us is a great desire to justify ourselves, just as those people serving prison sentences wanted to differentiate between what they had done wrong and what others did wrong. So I think we can have the same desire as Christians. You see, when I'm confronted with my own sins, I tell myself, for example, that they result from the overwhelming temptations I encounter for being an active Christian soldier. Or perhaps I recognize that some of my sins flow from faults in my character, but then I quickly reassure myself that I'm working on those faults and that I'm much better now than I once was. So it's perfectly understandable that God would want to forgive me for my sins. On the other hand, when I hear of the sins that others have committed, I use a different standard and I'm far more judgmental. I think their sins are disgusting, inexplicable and unforgivable. In fact, I cannot see how they can be really Christians at all when they have behaved in such evil and depraved ways. So I sincerely doubt if God would forgive them such appalling sins, and therefore I see no reason why I should forgive them either. It seems to me that in today's passage, Jesus is making three points. The first point that Jesus is making 
is that the strict words of the commandments are the absolute lowest baseline. If we are to mature as Christians, we need to aim much higher than that. So although strictly the commandment only requires that we do not murder, for those of us who wish to please our Savior, just not killing people is not good enough. To me, the challenge of Jesus could be summarized like this. Don't think that you'll get to heaven simply by avoiding being sent to prison. I find it really interesting that when Jesus was asked which was the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, he did not refer to the Ten Commandments at all, but instead referred to a positive commandment. You'll remember the Pharisees came up to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. As followers of Jesus, we need to aim for the positive of loving the Lord our God. This means that we have to learn to control our thoughts, our anger, and in particular, we need to rein in our desire to judge others. I mentioned a few minutes ago how easy it is to justify your own sins while simultaneously criticizing others for theirs. I'm sometimes amazed at how judgmental and unforgiving we Christians can be to other Christians. It's almost as if the only time that you get forgiven is when you first come to faith. After that, woe betide you if you ever put a foot wrong. But today's passage makes it clear it's not for us to prejudge our brothers and to slander them before others. And it comes with a clear warning. If you've been derogatory to your brother, belittling him and calling him a fool, at the final day of judgment, you will be regarded no differently from one who has actually committed murder. If you say of your brother, he's a complete idiot, you are in danger of spending eternity in hell because hatred in your heart is the same as hatred acted out. Secondly, Jesus warns us against religious hypocrisy. Last week, Jay Wayne reminded us of Jesus' heavy criticism of the Pharisees. This was because the Pharisees gave the external impression of being pious, believing men, but actually were complete hypocrites, harboring all sorts of evil, godless desires within. Jesus likened them to whitewashed tombs, clean and respectable on the outside, but housing all sorts of decay and corruption inside. If I'm honest, I fall into this category. I try to give the outward impression of being an upstanding Christian, living in harmony with my fellow believers. But God knows that I often harbor critical, mean thoughts about others. Jesus makes it clear in today's passage that we need to take steps to sort these things out. Let me give you an example. When Jane became a Christian in 1979, she bounded into the church with seemingly endless energy. After a couple of months, Ursula, who was another member of the small group Jane was attending, sent Jane an invitation to afternoon tea, explaining that she was finding it very difficult to love Jane, so she thought it important to get to know Jane better. It was a brave move. I fear that if it had been me, I would have just kept those thoughts to myself. But it was a move that God blessed because over 40 years later, Jane and Ursula remain very good friends. Now, I have to confess, I struggle with Jesus's third point, that you should settle with your adversary on the way to court. I mean, if everybody did this, 
How would we lawyers be able to have the money necessary to buy our next case of pink champagne? But rather more seriously, it seems to me that this third point really encapsulates all three of today's points. As Christian believers, the most important thing is to live in harmony with all people. As St. Paul wrote to the Romans, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. It is apparent from the Bible that Jesus is much more interested in relationships between people than with projects. So throughout today's passage, Jesus is emphasizing that harmony in relationships is the most important thing. He tells us, don't criticize your brother. Don't give a show of Christian piety when you know that you're really at loggerheads with other believers. And if somebody is at enmity with you, do all that you can do to bring about a peaceful resolution, even if that means you have to give up some of your own entitlements and your own rights. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty overwhelmed by some of this. I can start out in the morning really resolved that I'm not going to be critical of other Christians and by midday, I find that I've criticized Justin Welby for some aspect of his leadership of the Church of England. I've been derogatory about, say, the Bishop of Bristol. And I've moaned to Jane about something that James and Wayne have suggested. And then I think, Lord, I can't do this. And in one sense, that is correct. I alone cannot do it. But when we become Christians, God implants his Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is not going to force us to do anything. But as we allow him access into more and more areas of our lives, he will refashion us. And things that we had originally thought were completely beyond us, we find we can do. I don't pretend to understand fully how the Holy Spirit within us purifies and sanctifies us. But I do know that part of that process requires us to be willing to be changed. At this time, when God is calling us to get ready, can invite each one of us, including myself, to set aside specific times where we come to God in prayer and ask him to make us willing to be purified and sanctified by his Holy Spirit.